friends. Welcome to Theology for Teachers, a podcast for those who teach theology. I'm Ed Hanenberg. In this episode, Dr. Richard Gillardi explores the differing levels of church teaching authority and the responsibilities that we as teachers have in presenting church doctrine fully and faithfully. Dr. Gillardi is chair of the Department of Theology at Boston College, a popular speaker, and the author of over a dozen books. This segment comes from his keynote address, Teaching Church Teaching, delivered at the Theology for Teachers workshop at John Carroll University in fall 2019. Now, again, (laughs) I'm conscious of the fact that there are a few people who've had to sit in a classroom with me for a while, and so they've heard this question. But it's a question worth asking. Roman Catholicism, it's one of the things I love about Roman Catholicism, loves lists. <laughs> and, and they're a catechist friend because they're the best way to have short answer exams. Right? <laughs> How many commandments are there? Ten. How many sacraments are there? Seven. How many persons in the Trinity? We're starting easy. <laughs> but I want, you to, I want you to explore the significance of the fact that our church, which has lists for everything, has no definitive, pache, whatever the heck he's reading, formal list of the number of dogmas, all right? I'm not saying people haven't tried to do it. I'm going to argue it's a mistake to do it, all right? Why? If we believe in dogmatic teaching, and I do, and if we believe that dogmas are propositional statements that infallibly mediate God's saving offer, and I believe that, and are proposed as such by the magisterium of the church, and I believe that. I just want to go on record here. I'm being recorded. I accept that. Why is it, if they exist, that we have no formal list? Well, I have an answer. (laughs) So the answer comes by way of, again, a thought experiment with which some might be familiar. Imagine a particular parish. We'll call it uh, Christ the Good Shepherd Parish. And imagine that Christ the Good Shepherd Parish has decided that that cheap, kitschy statue that they have in front of their church needs to go. And that they would like a wonderful work of art, a a genuine sculpture of Christ the Good Shepherd. And so they've commissioned a wonderful Italian sculpture of considerable renown to produce a work of art for them. It's five years overdue. This happens all the time. But finally, we're told the sculpture's arrived. It's been set in front of the church. It's covered. It's shrouded right now. But it will be unveiled this Friday evening. And parishioners are invited to gather in front of the church to see the unveiling. So parishioners gather around the church with great anticipation. The shroud is removed from the sculpture. Somebody flips the switch. The lights come on. And almost in unison, the people gather. They say, my God, what gorgeous floodlights. We would recognize that something had really gone wrong here. The sculptor, in particular, would be indeed disappointed because the point is not to focus on the floodlights. The point is to draw your gaze to the work of art, right? Christ the Good Shepherd. Now, you need the floodlights to see the work of art. But the point is not to walk around and say, well, isn't this interesting? There are 12 floodlights here, right? And if you go to the sculptor and you say, well, in fact, I'm really curious about this. Your work's fine, but I'm really interested in why you have 12 floodlights. Well, he'd be annoyed, or she'd be annoyed. Should be a she. 
But she'd probably say to you, well, there are 12 floodlights because that's how many I think we need to help people see the statue. And if somebody came along to the sculptor and said, what are you trying to do there with the way you have the lamb on the shoulder? I can't quite see that clearly. Is the lamb frightened or is it consoled? Or, and the sculptor goes, you're right, you can't see this. I think we need to add a 13th floodlight. Because I think we need to illuminate that aspect of the work of art that you're not seeing clearly enough. There's some ambiguity. I don't want some ambiguity about that. That's an important part of the work. Does everybody see that? Now they're 13. Oh my God, what are we going to do? The number changed, right? Why do we not have a set number of dogmas? Because we have as many as we need to help us understand the one revelation that comes to us in a person, Christ. How many dogmas are there? As many as the church discerns are necessary to communicate the one revelation of God who comes to us in Christ by the power of the Spirit. Does that follow? Which is why Vatican I said clearly that when the Pope solemnly defines the dogma of the church, says this very clearly, chapter 4 of Pastor Eternus, he does not teach new doctrine. There's no new revelation. When you add the floodlight, all you're doing is bringing to greater awareness that which is already in revelation. Does that follow? No new truth. So why do we not count them in some decisive way? Because the number of them depends on how we talk about them. There are a number of dogmas, first of all, that you could say, well, that's one teaching or that's three or that's four teachings. You can divide them up different ways. The church may solemnly define, quote unquote, a new dogma, which is never going to be a, a new datum, a revelation. It is simply a new articulation that, that's going to bring to light, right? The fullness of God's revelation in Christ by the Spirit. Which, of course, then raises the question, well, what are our obligations in response to that dogma? And there's a temptation to try and find that list of 263 and to make sure that our students know all 263 of them. And I would think that would be in a grievous error, catechetically. Right? Because while every dogmatic teaching... I believe in faith to be true, faithful, reliable. Not all speak to our faith in the same way today. Many of them responded to very specific controversies and questions that are no longer with us now. And about which, frankly, we do not need to trouble ourselves. This is an extraordinarily learned group, but I suspect that none of us would completely pass a dogma test. You know, if I were to ask you, for example, about Chalcedonian doctrine, you would certainly understand the basics of Chalcedon's teaching on the hypostatic union, that the second person of the Trinity from the fullness of all time enters into history as Christ, one person, two natures, fully human, fully divine. But then if I asked you, does Christ have one will or two wills, you would say, you're not a heretic at all. Right? This was a huge issue in the 6th and 7th century. A huge issue. Because it was related to another question, the problem of monophysitism, the claim that there was only one fusis in Christ. And so there was a controversy. Said, well, okay, we're going to say that there was just one will. But of course, if you say there's one will in Christ, you're going to have to say it's a divine will. And then he really isn't human, like us in all things but sin. So monothelitism was condemned at the Third Council of Constantinople. Now, are you not a faithful Catholic because you don't know that? No. 
First of all, we don't use that kind of language, one will, two wills anymore. It comes from a kind of faculty psychology that has an intelligibility, historically understood, but it's not the way we talk about things. All right? So the hierarchy of truths reminds us that just because something has been pronounced as a dogma of the church doesn't mean that like a litmus test, we've got to check it off and cover every one of them. Many of them played an important role at some point in the history of the church. We're not free to simply repudiate them, but we certainly are free to simply recognize they don't lay a serious claim on our faith, right? And that we've lived a perfectly fine life without ever engaging the monothelite question, all right? So that's worth our remembering, and again, it's why the hierarchy of truths is so important for us. So we say in the Catholic teaching that dogmas have been infallibly proposed, which is not nearly as robust a claim as many people imagine. If you want to go back to my floodlight example, here's all that says. All that says is when you go to the church of Christ the Good Shepherd, you are confident that the floodlights will not direct your gaze to the church's rain gutter. It will, in fact, direct your gaze to the work of art. Doesn't mean you can't put a better lamp in there. Doesn't mean you can't use better technology to illuminate something. Doesn't mean you can't, in other words, reformulate a dogma of the church. All the church's teaching on infallibility says is it will not lead you astray. It is not wrong, right? But it will inevitably be a human formulation using human language, human philosophical constructs, and therefore is always going to be subject to reformulation and reimagination. Second category, one of the more controversial ones, we're not going to be able to spend a lot of time on this, but maybe we'll come back to it during Q&A. It's called definitive doctrine. This is a category that's relatively recent in Catholic parlance. In fact, I would make the argument it wasn't really a distinct category that received considerable attention until the 1989 promulgation of the Profession of Faith and Oath of Fidelity, which has a separate paragraph added to the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed that deals with these teachings. These are not teachings that are divinely revealed. These are teachings that are necessary to safeguard and defend divine revelation. In the old dogmatic manuals, it included things like the Council of Trent's determination of what books were in the canon of the Bible. The idea was, well, that list of the books in the canon of the Bible is not itself divine revelation, but if we got it wrong, revelation would be in jeopardy. So we have to trust that the teaching about what books are in the Bible is infallibly proposed. Or the determination that Vatican I was, in fact, an ecumenical council. All right. These are not teachings that are divinely revealed. These are teachings that are necessary to safeguard and defend divine revelation. Now, to the extent this category was part of the explicit consciousness of theologians, and prior to Vatican II, it was barely a part of their consciousness. It, in the manuals, it was treated under this arcane category called the secondary object of infallibility. It has become much more important because in the post-conciliar period, any number of teachings have rather controversially been dumped, as it were, in this category, including, most controversially, the claim that the prohibition of the ordination of women has been placed in that category, a, a disputed claim. But one of the reasons why definitive doctrine receives a lot more attention today than it probably ought to receive. Again, we might circle back to that later. The third category refers to authoritative doctrine. Actually, I believe the vast majority of church teaching belongs in this category, particularly in the moral life of the church. I do believe there are moral teachings that are in the first category of dogma. I mean, but those are fundamentally things like the Ten Commandments and the law of love, right? Loving your enemy, 
those fundamental universal precepts of the church. But the moment we move to concrete moral precepts, concrete moral norms, we are engaging, the church is engaging in normative reflection on things that depend frequently on contingent knowledge. That's a way of saying that while the church wants to make normative claims about the moral life, it also has to depend on what it knows from modern science. So it was commonly taught in the Middle Ages that an abortion prior to quickening was not as morally serious as an abortion after quickening. Now, that was a moral doctrine of the church, but it was a moral doctrine that depended on a mistaken understanding of embryology. Does that follow? No, it doesn't mean the church shouldn't have been making a pronouncement on it. It's simply a recognition that its teaching in part depends here on contingent knowledge that's subject to change and development. Does everybody see that? All right. Much, by the way, as the teaching that existed for a long time that women were subordinate to men on the order of nature. To some extent, that was based on a mistaken Aristotelian biology that understood women as misbegotten men. All right? The church's teaching was drawing on whatever the knowledge of the time was. Does that follow? Now, does that, that does not mean the church shouldn't be making pronouncements on concrete moral questions. That's frankly where most of us live. That's where we need guidance. That's where we need help. I'm not saying we shouldn't be pronouncing on it, but I do think we ought to recognize that when we move into this third category, the church's claims for the authority of its teaching are much more modest. We recognize that these teachings are not divinely revealed. Presumably, they emerge from the church's ongoing reflection on divine revelation, the way that we've prayed scripture in the light of tradition, the way we've reflected on new scientific understanding, and so on, right? But because it depends on contingent knowledge, We believe that the teaching office of the church, the magisterium, is assisted by the Spirit, but not infallibly. Not in a way that precludes the possibility of error. And so Catholics are not expected to give to authoritative doctrine a submission of faith, but Vatican II says a submission of intellect and will. We give these teachings a presumption of truth. A presumption of truth. But in some instances, and we'll come back to that later, a presumption that may have to yield in the face of serious doubts and questions. Again, we'll have a chance to come back to that later. And the last category really is not doctrine, properly speaking. It's the realm of church, church discipline, church law. Every community has to decide how it lives. Right? It's got to make a decision about its common life. Right? Every large society has to have rules of conduct. This is what we do. Right? And the church is no different. And so we have universal law, and we have particular law. These laws lay a claim on our external assent. They do not necessarily require our internal assent in the way that the first three categories do. What do I mean by that? I mean that state of Massachusetts may have, within 10 miles of Boston, a speed limit of highways of 55 miles an hour. And I may think that's too low. But I'm not going to get anywhere when I'm pulled over going 70. And I say, well, I really think we've made a mistake. And there's no reason for this to be a 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. The police officer is going to say, well, you're welcome to your opinion. But this is the law, right? We don't have to think it's a good law. We don't have to agree with it, right, to obey it. And frankly, there will be many of us who think there are lots of disciplinary elements in the life of the church today with which we disagree. Right? Perhaps it's in the liturgical law. I happen to be of the mind that the U.S. Bishops' Conference's decision way back in the day to have us kneel from the Sanctus to the Great Amen is not a good liturgical law. You may disagree with me on that. 
for the sake of the common good, I kneel when I'm, my community kneels. I don't have to think it's a good law, and I could advocate as a theologian for us to revisit that law. Does that follow? Now, I do think there's situations where the church's law creates a conflict of conscience. Now we've got a different problem, because it seems to me that while we have a general obligation to follow the law, even if we disagree with it, we can't follow the law if it conflicts with our conscience. If our conscience calls us to do the good in a way that's at odds with the law, our conscience takes priority. Beyond that, in the world of canon law, we used to speak of the virtue of epikaia, right? That's a, it's a prudential judgment where we're always asking, well, what's the spirit of the law in this situation? Did the law envision my case when it prohibited X, when it prescribed Y? Does that follow? All right. This is what we teach. And it seems to me, when we present the faith, we need to be aware of these distinctions, right? That leads us to the last thing I want to talk about, the obligations that we have as ministers when it comes to presenting church teaching, right? Because I think this is a, note, a little different question than simply, does a Catholic have the right to disagree with church teaching, right? And by the way, the answer to that is, it seems to me, well, it depends <laughs> on what the teaching is. If you got nothing else from those four circles, I hope you got that. It depends. Can I be a Catholic in good standing and think that Jesus is simply a good teacher, a wisdom figure, a prophet among many prophets? I would argue no. Doesn't mean I'm going to hell. That's a different question. But I'm not sure I can say I'm Roman Catholic if I don't believe in Christ, in the divinity of Christ, all right? Or the resurrection of the body or any number of the teachings of the church. I'm not talking about can we disagree with teaching A, B, or C. I'm talking about what are our obligations as teachers, in the classroom, or as catechists, right? And I want to suggest to you that we have three obligations that shape how we fulfill that public role. First, we have an obligation to present the official teaching of the church comprehensively and sympathetically. Now that veritably, very, veritably, bleh, that veritably screams for clarification. You should already understand that when I say comprehensively, I do not mean that you find a checklist of 263 teachings and make sure you get through all of them. That's not what I mean by comprehensive. By comprehensive, I mean some sense in which we have presented with integrity the fundamental Christian charisma, God's saving offer, right? And that we do so sympathetically. Now, this one's tricky. I get that. But I want you to... Follow this for me. When I say sympathetically, what I mean is that those who come to me as a parish director of adult education or as a Catholic theology teacher in a high school are expecting me as a representative to present the Catholic faith, not Rick Gillardi's faith. Now, Rick Gillardi has a faith appropriation, as does everyone in this room. We all have our own particular appropriation of the Catholic faith. And I don't mean by that we each pick and choose and leave things aside. I just mean that we will generally emphasize certain elements of our faith over others. There will be people here for whom their devotion to the Blessed Mother will have a much greater visibility in the realization and the performance of their faith than it will for other people. Right? It's not a pick and choose thing. That's just the way in which we make our faith personal. Right? What I'm talking about here is that they have a right to engage 
the teaching of the church as it's presented within the tradition. And that means that we need to avoid both a liberal and a conservative paternalism. This is important. A conservative paternalism essentially says, you need to believe this if you want to be a good Catholic. Because you have to believe what the church teaches. Which sort of shuts down their role of kind of personal appropriation, struggle, engagement, doubt, and so on and so forth. But there's also a liberal paternalism, and we have to be just as careful about that. The liberal paternalism says, what, church is teaching on birth control? I'll be honest, I think it's a little silly. We're just not going to talk about that. In which I give you an out because I don't find that teaching compelling. Now, let me be clear. I think it's wholly appropriate for me or you to engage in a particular teaching of the church and to find that we cannot give an internal assent to that teaching. I think that's wholly legitimate. And I think there are contexts in which we have a right, in fact, to respectfully articulate our concern and our desire for change in a particular teaching of the church. Assume it's not a dogmatic teaching. But as a teacher, I do not have the right to say, because I have decided that I can't give an assent to this teaching, you don't need to hear about it. Because I'm robbing you of your right to engage that teaching. You see what I'm saying? And I don't have a right to do that. Even if I think such and such a teaching may need to be revised, and I do think there are some teachings that need to be revised, you have to do that wrestling match that I've done. Does that follow? And so I need to give my students an opportunity to struggle. Because the fact is, they may not struggle with what I struggle with. They may not find that problematic. And the other side is some teaching that I accept without any difficulty really brings them up short, right? So I need to be careful of both a paternalism that is liberal and a paternalism that is conservative, neither of which attend to the the integrity of our students' own faith journey, even as adolescents, all right? Second, we have an obligation to make explicit, when appropriate, the binding character of a particular teaching. Now, I'm not saying we do a list where we put them in column A and column B and column C. But I am saying if somebody comes to me, for example, and they're they're considering entering full communion as a Roman Catholic. They love so much of what they learned about the Catholic Church. But they struggle over a particular teaching of the church. It's, you know, I'll, I'll use this as an example. It's condemnation of in vitro fertilization. It seems to me quite appropriate for me to say, well, I understand your struggles. I do want you to know that that's not exactly a dogma of the church. That in the hierarchy of truths, it's not even in that inner circle. It's a teaching of the church. I'm not inviting you to dismiss it. But really, it's important for you to know that this is not quite like the bodily resurrection. Does that follow? So when people struggle, it does seem to me that we play an appropriate role when we help them understand the centrality the particular authority that the church itself proposes for a given teaching. Does that, everybody see that? I'm almost done, Ed. <laughs> Finally, we need to encourage the habit of wrestling with the tradition for those who struggle with church teaching. I propose the metaphor of wrestling. If anybody was here last night, I talked about this last night. I prefer the, the, the metaphor of wrestling as a via media between two extremes. On the one hand is a Catholic fundamentalism that it demands unthinking acquiescence before the teaching of the church. 
It's taught by the magisterium, and therefore you're simply to accept it without question. I also offered, however, as an alternative to a more commodified, a more consumerist hermeneutic, in which I simply pick and choose the elements of the church's teaching that affirm my own particular viewpoints, my own political predilections, for example, and I conveniently set aside whatever bothers me, whatever whatever I find unpalatable. And I think we need a middle way between that. And the middle way that I propose is the metaphor of wrestling. And of course, I take that wonderful story from the book of Genesis about Jacob wrestling with an angel that turns out to be nothing less than wrestling with God. And I want to propose to you that I don't think God is threatened by our wrestling. And I want to invite our students not to facile obedience, not to consumerist dismissal, but to the courage to wrestle. Because at the end of the day, I'm convinced that what belonging to a community of faith means is not that I assent to everything, but that I consent to be troubled by everything. That was Dr. Richard Gallardi speaking at the Fall 2019 Theology for Teachers workshop at John Carroll University. Theology for Teachers is produced by Edward P. Hannenberg, the Breen Chair in Catholic Theology at John Carroll University. Jesuit Catholic University in Cleveland, Ohio. To learn more, visit www.theologyforteachers.com. That's theologyforteachers.com.